you have your Bibles, I urge you to turn to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. If you uh, don't have your Bible with you, uh, you can find the words to Psalm 25 in your worship bulletin that you received or in the hymnal uh, that is in the pew rack in front of you. Although I forgot again to check what page number that was. 582, same as last week. All right, good deal. 582 if you're using the hymnal in the pew rack in front of you. Let us ask God's mercy upon us as we open his word this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we, we sang this refrain that our spiritual hope, our, our very hope in life and in death, sometimes when we think spiritual, we think something compartmentalized is just one aspect of our life. But the, the very hope of our souls, the very hope of our lives is found not in us, but in you and in the perfect, wise, complete, finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so, Lord, it is because of this now that we open your word and we pray that you would more and more and more make us into the people that you would have us to be by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit of God applying this gospel to us. We pray that you would do this by your power through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the Olympics began on Friday evening. Well, technically, for those of you that are diehards, they didn't begin on Friday with the opening ceremony. Some of the preliminary events already began a day or two ahead of time. I don't know how many of you knew that. I did. Um, But the Olympics formally began with the opening ceremonies on Friday night. And I I imagine a few of you may be like this, but I'm, I'm quite an Olympics nut. I enjoy watching the Olympics. I don't enjoy watching the events that I can normally watch. I'm not going to watch much Olympic baseball. I probably won't watch much Olympic basketball because I can watch those here. But you bring the really obscure events, and I am am in. So uh, artistic gymnastics, don't know anything about it, but yeah, I'll watch. Uh, The other day, the first medals of the Olympics were already rewarded in 10-meter air rifle shooting. Americans won gold and silver, I believe, in that. So we're off to a good start. Uh, but I, I, th- that is how I am wired towards the Olympics. And the best thing about it, well, for some, if you try to watch them with me, you won't say it's the best thing about it. But the best thing about it, in my mind, is that I can sit back in my chair, having not watched any, having, knowing nothing about some of these events. Never played water polo a day in my life. Uh, but I can sit back and I can watch it and I will comment on it as if I'm an expert. You know, I, I will comment on airsoft gun shooting as if I'm an expert. In the Winter Olympics, uh, cross-country skiing and rifle shooting, yeah, I'm there. I, and I know more about it than the people that are actually doing it. I think that says something about myself. But truthfully, let me ask you this. When you consider what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian, you might imagine or you might picture this standard or this expectation upon yourself in a world-class manner. The Apostle Paul uses language uh, in his epistles about like running the race of the Christian faith. 
and running it as, as, as if to win, running it with full effort, full energy, going 100 miles an hour. And you might feel as if, yeah, I get the picture, but I can't run that fast. I can't do it that well. The question was put to me the other day, Stephen, if you could, you know, quit your job, totally disengage from the world, and had to train for the Olympics for the next four years, what event might you have a, the, the most possibly chance of qualifying for? And ultimately, I decided it was race walking. I, maybe I could do that. But then I looked into it, and the race walking itself is quite serious. Apparently, the race walkers do miles in like seven, eight, nine minutes. And the average person just walking a mile is more like 20 minutes to walk a mile. So even race walking, which have the appearance of, hey, I could do that. Maybe you couldn't. And maybe that's the attitude you have about Christianity today, about your own growth in the faith. You feel as if you you became a Christian and yeah, I think I can do this. And yet, maybe it's a little harder than you initially envisioned. Or you imagined. Struggles, challenges, trials have come your way that you did not initially sign up for. And as you run the race that is set before you, you feel as if you have know-it-alls like me sitting in the chair watching and commenting on every wrong that you commit. If that is the boat that you are in, or if that is the boat that you have ever found yourself in, Maybe you're not there now. Maybe you think you're running at a pretty good pace right now. Well, let me encourage you. You will trip and fall at some point, not very long in the future. There's your encouragement for the day. But how do you keep on going? When you feel as if maybe Christianity, as you have been snatched up off your couch and you've been put in a 100-meter dash where you've got to race the fastest people on the planet... How do you run your race? Well, I think Psalm 25 helps us a little with that. And it, David, the writer of this psalm, cries out to God for help as he navigates through the trials that he faces by virtue of being a servant of God. Psalm 25, follow along as I read. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. 
His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God. Out of all his troubles. The way in which we serve God, the way in which we grow as his people, is not necessarily by running the race as fast as we can, but we actually grow as the people of God in humble submission under the leadership and the hand of God. You want to grow as a Christian? You want that strength for the race that is set before you? Don't try to grow in your own strength. But rest in the strength of God who has set himself before you. And submit yourself under his hand over you. Look at David here. In Psalm 25, David begins in verse 1 by saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Let me pause right here. For the sake of context, here's what's going on. David is this kingly figure that God has raised up to serve him and to be uh, the, the, the king over the people of Israel. And yet David knows that this is not a service that is easily accomplished. His journey towards becoming the king is one that is fraught with those even seeking to take his life. And then even as he becomes king, he recognizes that the burden, the responsibility of leading a vast number of people is not something that is easily accomplished. Rather, there are great trials and there are great hardships that he faces. And so David is aware in Psalm 25, he is aware of two things. He is aware of his enemies who seek his harm. And he is aware of his own sin or his own weakness that weighs down upon him. And these two things serve as like concrete blocks that are on his feet as he tries to run the race that God has set out before him. What are the concrete blocks that would be on your feet as you seek to serve God as you seek to walk in obedience to Him. It might be those around you who would disagree with the Christian faith. Even those who would mock or scorn or ridicule you because you are a Christian or because you are even entertaining the idea of believing in this faith that in the eyes of the world around us is outdated is of a time of old, no longer relevant for our day and age. 
Maybe that would be a concrete block that would weigh you down. Or perhaps you would be like David and you would say, no, it's not necessarily, or it's not only these things outside of me, but it is even sometimes things inside of me. David is a man who committed great sin against God and against others. And he was a man who is aware of the burdens and the trials of his own sinfulness against God. Maybe your own heart ensnares you with the weight of conviction over, over whatever it might be that, 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 that flashes in a memory of your past or whatever it might be that flashes in a reminder of the manner by which you were short with that person earlier even today. Whatever the sin might be of your own heart that haunts you, that serves as that concrete block on your foot as you try to run the race, David helps us in walking through and understanding how we approach that as well. So David says in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And then verses 4 through 7 serve to to begin a a, a form of helping us to understand the structure of this psalm. In verses 1 through 7, really, verses 4 through 7 are are the heart of this prayer. But 1 through 7 is a prayer to God. 8 through 15 is a confession about God. And then 16 through the end of the chapter, verses 16 through 22, is another prayer to God. So it's prayer, confession, prayer. And the confession isn't a confession to God like, hey, here's all my sins, I confess them to you, although that is good. It is a confession about the God to whom David prays. So as we begin to walk through this, you and I are going to be strengthened in our own prayer life, in our own taking our struggles and our trials and serving God and in walking in obedience to Him, Uh, we're we're going to be served and strengthened by seeing how David navigates this walk of obedience before God, beginning in how he prays to God. And so he prays in verses 4 and 5, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. First thing for us to understand here as we see in David's prayer. David is praying from a heart that is troubled, but his heart is troubled not because his soul is disobedient to God. David is not experiencing a disconnect here because God wants one thing for his life and he wants another. David is experiencing a disconnect here because life is hard. Obedience to God is difficult. Understanding the direction that God wants us to go in life can be challenging because life is naturally difficult. You don't hear David saying, God, why aren't you giving me everything I want? You're you're hearing him say, God, I want to walk in the paths that you would set before me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And then David says rightly, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. This is a prayer to be admired. This is a prayer for us to even model in our lives. I'll be honest, many times when I have that item, that thing, that, 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 that circumstance that I'm waiting to be resolved, that I'm praying for God to work out, first of all, I tell him how he needs to do it because I know better than him. But then secondly, rare do I say, for you I wait all the day long, O Lord. Rather, my attitude, it might be a little like, hey, at least a couple of you. Where you say, God, you should wait on me. I don't need to be waiting on you. 
We don't say it, but our hearts believe it. And David here, he's saying, no, 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 no. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. Is God the God of your salvation? Simply stated, we as Christians believe that we have been redeemed by the life, the blood, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so operating from this perspective whereby our sins have been atoned for, our lives have been redeemed by God through His work in sending His Son, we ought to have a disposition whereby we humbly acknowledge and we cry out as we sang with that song, Not in Me, that God alone is our salvation. And when we believe that and when we understand that, that firmly reorients our prayers and our understanding of what it means to follow God. We follow him not as if he is the butler to whom we give orders, but we follow him as if he is the captain under whom we are submitted and we are following in his steps. And this is what we see with David. And so David, crying these things out with aware of his enemies around him and the trials of the own sin of his heart, he says in verse 6 and 7, he prays, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. This might be an appropriate prayer, verses 4 through 7, for you to pray when you get home today, before you go to bed. David models for us a prayer from the troubled heart before the peaceful God. But you want to know what will help us in in praying such things? Will help us in trusting such things? I think sometimes we think, we, we might pray, God, I want to know your ways. Teach me the paths that you would have me to walk through or that you would have me to walk down. The problem is that sometimes we would want to pray this, but we envision in our minds what those paths will be, do we not? And where we want the casual stroll along the beach, God might have something more in mind, or we think he has in mind, something that's more like the high wire walk over Niagara Falls. We want the casual walk through the park, and we are fearful that God will give us the great marathon that we have to run, like the Boston Marathon, and we're trying to get up Heartbreak Hill while our lungs are locked up. Yet what we're going to see here in the confession of verses seven of 8 through 15, but also in understanding what it means to follow God, is that yes, God actually calls all who would follow after him towards a path or towards a, a direction that is far more taxing, far more even troubling than we may ever understand or we may ever realize upon entering that path. And yet what we will see is that this path that, is, that, 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 that demands far more of us than we may understand. It is a path that we, where we are nourished by the grace and the mercy of God. And we are uh, uh, cherished by Him. And we are lavished in His mercy and His strength for day by day by day, for moment by moment by moment. So it is a path that though it costs us all of our lives... It gives to us life that is only known and enjoyed by the power and the mercy of God at work within us. So one thing David is 
confronting here. He doesn't, he, he realizes it perhaps a little, but what he's confronting for us is a lack of understanding about what it means to follow after God. To become a Christian is not to say, okay, God, I, I entrust myself to you, and now I want us to have some kind of partnership where you scratch my back, I scratch yours. No. To become a Christian is one where, God, I entrust myself to you. Now take me by the hand with your steadfast love and mercy and guide me down the path that you would have for me. But the prayer that is born that says that, that says verses 4 through 7, is a prayer that has to be rooted in what we believe about God. And that is what we get in verses 8 to 15. Listen to this confession that David makes. He transitions out of the prayer now to a confession about God. And as I read verses 8 through 10, let me ask you, just carefully ponder in your heart, do I really believe these things about God and about what He would have for my life? Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. You can picture David saying this kind of calmly. Good and upright is the Lord. And yet if you're anything like me, when trial comes, when adversity strikes, when when the, the, the... world is spinning out of control, I don't sit back very easily and say, good and upright is the Lord. I say, where are you, God? (laughs) I believe you're good. I believe you're upright, but, but I need you right here, right now. May God give us a heart that is grounded in this truth. And look at what David says in verse 11. He says, based on these truths, he says in verse 11, he has one interjection, one prayer in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then he goes back to confession in verses 12 to 15. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I think the thing for us to see, one thing of many, for us to see in verses 8 through 15 with this little interjectory prayer. Is interjectory a word? We'll make it a word. You know what it means. This little interjectory prayer. Injunctive? Injunctive interjectory. I don't know. You track with me. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. We talk a lot about sin. And for some, this idea or this concept of sin itself can seem outdated, harsh, old. Is God, Stephen, are you telling me that God is this one who rules over us and almost like a tyrant, we have to continually go before him and say, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, oh, please have mercy on me, don't strike me down today. Is that what we're getting at when we talk about our sin? It could sound that way. It certainly could, where we are continually confessing our sin, where we are continually acknowledging our unworthiness before God. Well, that is not what we are getting at here. That is not what David is getting at here. In fact, what David is saying is he is recognizing the goodness and the mercy 
and the kindness and the grace of God. But what he is acknowledging and what he is confessing is that his sin against God, his guilt before God, is the hindrance to him knowing and understanding and experiencing the fullness of relationship with God. Our sin is not something that is easy to manage and comfortable to, to, to take up residence in us. And it is something that we just have to put to the side when God comes over. No, our sin is actually the thing that causes us to think wrongly about God. And so it is the sin of my heart that would believe that God is a tyrant and not a loving father. It is the sin of my heart that would believe that the grace of God as given to us in Jesus Christ is something that is available uh, 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 to be enjoyed by others, but I cannot know it in myself because I would cherish something greater than that love of God in Jesus Christ. And so sin is not something where we say, okay, God, I'm a sinner. Here you go, and please don't hurt me. But no, sin is something that we confess and we say, God, have mercy upon me that the, the, that the waterfalls of your love may wash down over me and may wash my heart anew to the point where my heart, when trial and when that hardship comes and when I'm walking down these paths, I'm trying to serve you and, 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 and I face uh, obstacles that I don't know how I'll get over, the, the sin in my heart wants to say, God is not good. I can't trust him. He's brought me this far to leave me high and dry. But no, That is what the sin is. But the truth of who God is, is that we are able to say good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. So maybe verses 8 through 15 are something good for us all to consider. You see, my prayers, if I'm considering verses 1 through 7 and verses 16 to 22, my prayers sometimes are, are more like shooting arrows up into the sky and hoping something clicks, hoping something hits. Like, okay, God, I pray this, 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 I pray this. And, and I, I, I put the Christianese language on it. And I, pray, I pray through Jesus. I know your Holy Spirit's at work with me and within me, and these are good things. And, I, and I, I believe all this. This is true. But Oftentimes, my, our prayers can sometimes be robbed of so much of the deep truths that God's Word reveals to us about God. What God's Word appeals to us to, what David is showing us here in Psalm 25, is he is saying, take God at His Word, dear Christian. Believe the truths that I am saying to you about God and allow those to, uh, to shape how you pray and how you trust in, entrust your soul to the God who reigns over you and to the God who loves you and promises to guide you along the paths by which he would have you to walk. You see, whenever we are just shooting prayers up into the sky and hoping something hits... Oftentimes it's because we feel like we are drowning in the circumstances of life around us and we don't know where to turn left or right, up or down. We feel as if we are about to be enveloped. But reminding ourselves again and again and even infusing our prayers with reminders, God, you are good. I know that your love has been set upon me and cannot be taken off of me. Reminding ourselves even things like that And allowing things like the truths we see in Psalm 25, allowing those to inform our prayer lives, 
is actually one of the great ways in which God will minister to us in our prayers. And is actually one of the great ways that God will strengthen us for whatever it is that you or that we may be walking through, that we or you or we may be facing. And so prayer is not something, okay, I get it done real quick, and okay, it's done, and now I hope God hears it, and I know He's going to work, and I know He's going to do this. But sometimes prayer is not only communing with God, but reminding ourselves of the promises and the goodness of God towards us who belong to Him. And so may we as a people resolve that this would be the case, that we'll work towards this in our own prayer lives. As we heard Rick pray just a few moments ago in our pastoral prayer. He did things like confessing sin and praying for the needs of people in the congregation, but he also made sure to make it a point of the prayer to emphasize the character and the nature of God and his love towards us. There's a divine mystery about prayer where we, where, whereby the people of God taking their needs before God and appealing to, appealing to him as, as, as children do before a loving father. There's a mystery there whereby the hands of God begin to work and his, 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 his power begins to, begins to be poured out upon his people. But there is not only a mystery where he begins to work and answer our prayers. There's a mystery where he begins to change our hearts and, 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 and uh, uh, embolden and, and, uh, Uh, expand our hearts to taste and see all the more, all the more, all the more of the, the manifold majesty and power and faithfulness of God to us. And so in one sense, as I said at the beginning, where, where the Christian life is one where we are brought on a path of journey and of service to him, and it is the most difficult thing that we can embrace and the most difficult path that we will ever walk in our lives. But in another sense, it is one where the path before us looks like storm clouds and darkness oftentimes in our own fearful nature, but the, but the path behind us is one of God's faithfulness and his, his pleasant, bountiful goodness to us, even as we walked through and amidst the storms of life that came over us. And so it is one where the rearview mirror shouts out to us the faithfulness of God, even as the windshield before us looks like great obstacles that we don't know how we'll get through. And prayer is the meeting of these things where we remind ourselves, the Spirit of God reminds us, we lay the future that we are burdened about before us. We lay that before God, but He lays before us the past and the, prom- and the present and the future promise of His goodness to us. It's the divine mystery of prayer at work in the heart of the people of God. And so maybe just a good practice in our own prayer lives. For as much as we ask, let's adore. For as much as we request, let's reflect like verses 8 through 15. Maybe this would be a good pattern for us. Prayer, and then take a pause in your prayers and you're taking your needs before God and try to reflect uh, as these verses lay out of all the ways in which God is good and that he has promised his faithfulness to his people. And watch what he does in your prayer life as you do that. So there's prayer, there's confession, and now there's prayer again in verses 16 through 22. David, with trying to run this race, walk this path with the concrete block of enemies trying to destroy him on one foot, the concrete block of his own sin on the other foot. The journey seems far more difficult than he imagined, perhaps, And he says in verse 16, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. 
Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is a prayer of a man who, though we don't know specifically what circumstances he was in the midst of, a man whose heart was gravely troubled. And we don't know his circumstances, but you might be able to join the refrain, the refrain of his words. How often could you have prayed, or maybe you weren't praying in the moment, but your heart sat there and you said, yeah, I'm lonely and afflicted. That's me. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Yeah, I, I could really use somebody or something to bring me out of my distresses. Maybe you've been in that boat of verse 19 where you said, yeah, consider how many are my foes? It seems everyone around me wants my harm. What violent hatred they hate me. And yes, as a Christian, even you have prayed, surrounded by non-Christians around you, maybe in your home, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your, uh, 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 in, in your nearest relationships of, of people that you were nearest, nearest to in the world, and now you become a Christian and there's something different about you than, than, than what once was, and now those relationships face just an added obstacle there. And you would say with David, yes, Lord, verse 20, guard my soul, deliver me, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. One of the great beauties about God's Word, and one of the great wonders about His mercy towards us, is that He does not give us a picture of a God who is up there, and like I said, we shoot arrows up there and hope that one of them hits, and hope that it becomes a lifeline that we hang on to as, 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 as the world around us, around us burns. But rather... The Christian life, running the race that is set before us, praying and communing with God, is one whereby we actually grab hold of the promises of God towards us, not in shooting these arrows upwards to Him, but in recognizing the mercy of Him coming to us. It is not a far leap to read these prayers of David and for our minds to advance a few hundred years, a thousand years from David's time, to a son of David who would be praying a prayer actually kind of similar to this as he was praying alone in a garden surrounded by friends who would soon betray him surrounded by enemies who would soon crucify him and he himself would be crying out Lord if there be any other way allow this cup to pass from me and that was our Lord Jesus Christ just hours before he would be crucified on that bloody, ugly cross in your place and in my place for our sins. And what we see in the prayer of David and we consider remembering our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is that our God who promises to be with us is our God who has already come to us and is our God who has already endured the worst evils that even we could ever know in this life and far greater.
For in his cross, Jesus endured that which would be death for him, but life for us. In his forsakenness by God the Father, and what that means is is in, in him paying the penalty for our sins, not his own, he was sinless, but in him bearing that and the Father turning his face away, we have the promise in the covenant of Jesus' broken body and shed blood that our Father will never turn His face away from you or from me. Because we, through Christ, are no longer beggars under the hand of a tyrant. He is not a tyrant. He is a righteous justice, just perfectly pure God, but understand the picture there. We are no longer beggars before what we perceive to be a tyrant. We are children before a loving father. And I can't remember who said it, but they described the prayers of the people of God. Remember when Jesus in the gospels urges those who who would follow after him, they say, teach us to pray. He says to them, be persistent in your prayers. Take all your needs before God. Cry out to him and, 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 and ascribe to him the majesty that is due to him, not only for his sake, not for his sake, but for your sake, for the praise of his name that your heart might be, might be consumed with awareness of who it is that you are praying for. And pray bold things. Cast the burdens of your life before him, knowing that you are not praying before him as if a citizen is knocking on the door of heaven. You are a young child coming before their loving father and asking for a glass of milk. And what loving father would not give that to his child? And so what we see here is, as David prays, God, teach me to walk these paths. And as we walk through our lives, God, teach me to walk in obedience to you. As we say with David, where he says in verses 4 and 5, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. This path is the path of Christ. It is the path of a life submitted to and surrendered under the hand of Christ. And it is a path where in Christ, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. If you do not know Christ, are you ready to cast off these concrete blocks as you try to walk through the quicksand of life? Demands that are far greater than you can handle. Burdens that are far more tiresome and far more uh, prolonged than you initially imagined. Come to Christ. He promises to take the heavy yoke, the heavy burden that rests upon you and give to you himself. And he says, come to me all who are heavy laden. He says, for he is gentle and lowly. And heart towards you. If you're a Christian and you, you feel as if, yeah, I am a Christian, I know this God, but the pathway before me still seems more difficult. And in fact, I'm tempted to believe that it is more difficult than it was before I became a Christian. The enemy would be trying to distract, disorient, and destroy you. Maybe the great thing that you need to be reminded of from Psalm 25 
Maybe you are familiar with the repeated cries that your heart makes. But you need to be made familiar again through careful reading and meditation and praying through. Not the cries of your heart. But the truths of your God. Of who he is towards those who are his. And may we all remember that the faithfulness of God to us is not grounded in our resolve or our capability or how fast we are able to run the race that he sets before us. But it is grounded in the Christ who has completed the race and who promises to be with us, to never forsake us, and to never let us go. And so, yeah, the race is full of false starts and tripping over ourselves and and hurdles that we can't get over and we fall and bump our head. But it is Christ who picks us up. It is Christ who guides us along. And it's through Christ and in Christ that we will cross that finish line. And so, in one sense, the race has already been completed. Let us entrust ourselves to Christ and know that through him, our God is with us today. Our God will see us through to completion of the race in the days to come. Let's pray. God, it is easy for us to fear circumstances that arise outside of our control and that would seek our harm and would seek our disillusionment and our destruction. It is easy for us to be entangled in, as the epistle says, in in civilian pursuits. It is easy for us to, as we read from Colossians, to not set our minds on things that are above, but to be disoriented by things that are here on earth. That is where we need you to teach us your paths. We need you to grab us by the hand. And we need you to show us yet again Christ, who is our King, who is our refuge, and who He alone is the means by which we will complete this race. Our lives intricately tied to His through faith by your grace, knowing that just as Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. And just as Christ sits at your right hand, we too shall enter your presence. Not because we are sinless, but because he has borne our sins. And so, Lord, let us give you praise and let our hearts today be hopeful through Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.